What is up, you guys? Welcome back to Consuming Crime with Jen and Jules. Jen is currently out on a holiday on holiday, so she will not be with us this week. And this episode should be posted on December 25th, Christmas Day. I hope you guys' Christmas is going well and you got to sleep in. And I don't know about you, but by at the point that this uh, episode is posted, I will have already opened all my gifts and given all my gifts away. Before I get started on today's episode, I just wanted to let you guys know to make sure to like us on Facebook, Consuming Crime. That's pretty much it. You're going to see the same logo as you see when you listen to our episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, which be sure to also give us five stars there. And uh, follow us on Instagram. We are, we're currently doing pretty good on Facebook likes, but Instagram, we want to get into those triple digits. So go ahead and help us out. It's going to be at Consuming Crime. Without further delay, I'm going to go ahead and jump into this week's episode. The source of today's episode is going to be Netflix, Cold Case Files. The episode is called Little Girl Lost. It is season one, episode one. It is about a little girl that goes missing Halloween weekend, which is every parent's worst nightmare. And I'm gonna get into that today. Um, viewer discretion is advised, or listener's discretion is advised in this case. And let's get started. So the documentary starts off with a statistic. There are over 120,000 unsolved murder cases in the US alone. 1% are solved. This may or may not be one of those 1%. On October 27th, 1992, in Oil City, Pennsylvania, 12-year-old Shauna Howe leaves her home to attend a Girl Scout party with her best friend, Joey L. This party ends at around 7.30. Shauna decides to walk home alone, bidding farewell to her best friend. Joey L. would be the last person to see Shauna alive and well. Lucy Howe, Shauna's mother, said that Shauna loved Halloween time, and that year she wanted to get into gymnastics, so she wore a gymnastics costume to her Girl Scout party. John Brown, Shauna's stepfather, called Lucy asking what time Shauna was expected to be home. She said the girls should be getting out between 7.30 and 8. It was 8.30 at this point. I'm not sure where the mother is. The documentary did not specify, but John is home. He goes outside and starts looking and calling for Shauna. Nothing. No big deal. Maybe she stayed a little later to hang out with her friends. Now it's 9.30. Lucy and John are now starting to worry. Lucy asks John to call local hospitals. Maybe she was hurt and forgot the number to call home. They call and nothing. At 10 o'clock, Lucy arrives at home and now they are panicking. They call police and the police arrive immediately. After taking initial questions about Shauna's whereabouts that evening, they receive a phone call. It's the station. A man by the name of Dane Payton, or Paton, I'm not really sure how to pronounce it, P-A-T-O-N, witnessed a girl being taken on West 1st Street. He was walking down the street and across the way he saw a tall, skinny man grab a girl. She lets out a short scream and he throws her into a small red car. They drove off immediately. Dan did not have a phone, so he had to knock on people's doors until someone answered it and he used theirs to call the police. This was a very small neighborhood, very tight-knit. The girl was Shauna and the, um, the man who called was able to identify her as Shauna Howe. Officers took this very seriously. They blocked roads and stopped cars for questioning. At one point, there were about 20 to 30 officers investigating the neighborhood. They knew that after 24 hours of someone going missing, their chances of survival decreased dramatically by the minute. Everyone was trying to help. Local people, neighbors got involved in the search. There were hundreds of them. One of the officers said, one of our children is missing. The only person that was not allowed to look was her mother, Lucy. 
She needed to stay home and wait by the phone in case the kidnapper called for a ransom, something like that. She felt completely helpless. She was pacing her living room, unable to do anything but wait. On October 29th, this is two days after the abduction, a witness called saying he spotted something underneath a bridge in Coulter's Hole. Coulter's Hole was an area where people would hunt, swim, hang out, drink, etc. Officers called John Brown to identify what was spotted. It was Shauna's gymnastics bodysuit. After testing was done on the suit, it was revealed that there was seminal fluid on the suit. She had been molested. At this point, we don't know if she is alive. And uh, this, this is part of the documentary that really got to me because obviously the officers being interviewed are just going to be very blunt and very cold cut. This is what happened. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of emotion when they, when they mentioned this part because, of course, they're, they're jaded. You know, they see stuff like this all the time, which is really, um, just really sad, honestly. But to continue, there was enough DNA on the suit to where they could create a profile. However, they could only test this DNA against people they had in front of them physically, which means they need a suspect before they can go anywhere else. On October 30th, three days after the abduction, another witness called the station and reported a dead body of a young girl. She had been placed underneath the bridge where the police were just at the other day. Her shoes were on top of the bridge, clearly placed there, along with a candy wrapper. The body was, in fact, Shauna Howe. Whoever did this was obviously taunting the police um, because they were just there the day before, and obviously they checked everywhere they possibly could, and then to come back the next day, clearly this is some sort of taunt. She had been thrown off the trestle, which was 33 feet high. They believe she was alive when she was thrown, then alive for another few minutes before taking her last breath. All of a sudden, I hear clump, clump, clump coming up the steps. My brother Keith literally falls in my lap and says, Sis, it's Shauna. I'm like, no, it can't be. It, it just can't. And Claire wraps his arms around me. And he says, it is, Sis. I seen her, and I said no, and I lost it. So that was Lucy Howe, Shauna's mother. Um, you could hear, even to this day, she's very, very distraught at what happened to her daughter. You know, what parent would it be? Um, I play that because I do want you guys to feel this emotionally along the way as I am. Normally, when Jen's here, we usually try to like, go off track, talk about something else for a second, just to, I don't know, I guess, distract from the situation. Because, you know, people, different people cope in a different way. Um, but obviously this week we're going to be very serious. Not much conversation, but um, there's nothing really much to say besides it's, it, the entire situation is extremely tragic and unexpected, which I think makes it even worse, is, you know, it, who would have thought? On October 31st, Halloween, no one celebrated, obviously. Officers needed to find a match to this DNA profile. First, they looked at the family. They took DNA from John, the uncles, even Lucy's son. This pissed her off because she's like, really, my son? But, but it is protocol and the son understood completely and he decided to take the test. The whole family came out negative. Officers spoke with friends, classmates, Girl Scouts, everyone. They were testing people left and right. They had to take blood tests, as swabs weren't sufficient enough for DNA matching at the time, which takes even longer. They found nothing. No one matched. 
It's been over a year now since the abduction, no leads. They start looking into people who drove red cars, which at this point in the documentary, I wonder you, you didn't want to look at people who drove red cars a year ago, but I don't know, maybe because they had already found Shauna's body, they weren't taking it as serious, but that's still no excuse. Anyway, Bill Crabtree, the man who found Shauna's body initially, they investigated. He drove a small red car. They searched his car, nothing. They took his DNA, it did not match. Back to no leads, no nothing. Someone had called the station and identified the described suspect as a man by the name of Ted Walker. Ted had met Shauna at a pizza shop. He was always trying to hug her and other young girls, but they would just run away. He had his house open to young children as well. They tested the DNA on him. It did not match. As to what kind of car he drives, this was not mentioned. I wonder at this point if there's anything else they can do besides DNA tests, because I almost think that just because it's not his DNA doesn't mean he wasn't involved somehow, but that's just my opinion. Let's move on. They looked into a man named Michael Pruitt. He lived a few doors down from where the abduction took place. The day after the body was found, he took a bus and fled town. This obviously is very suspicious. They received a warrant to search his property and found a cubby hole. Shauna had scrapes on her knees and was kept alive for two days, so there must have been a place to keep her in the meantime. Police suspected it was this cubby hole. So they get the warrant, they go in, and their main focus is the cubby hole. They tested every inch of it, and there was nothing. They eventually DNA tested Michael, and he was cleared of the crime. Again, doesn't mean he wasn't involved, but I don't know. On July 30th, 1995, three years later, someone tried abducting another girl. He tried getting her in the trunk, but she fought with everything she had and was able to escape. She identified the man, Jimmy O'Brien. Jim was the brother of Tim O'Brien. These two were known to be sexually violent. They were also very well known by officers. So at this point, if you're still with me, you're probably wondering, why haven't we looked at these guys already? It's been three years. What the hell are you guys doing? So we'll get into that. Jim tried abducting that girl on the same street that Shauna was abducted. According to officer Charles Daly, he had already looked into those two. So there's our answer right there. They were in police custody at the time of Shauna's disappearance. So this at this point, I started to feel very disappointed because of everyone that they've looked at so far, I was the most confident with the O'Briens because it's the the same thing. They're, you know, they're sexually violent and they tried to abduct a girl in a car on the same street that Shauna was on. So I, I, it was very convincing to me that they were the ones who did it, but I guess they were in custody. So let's continue. On October 29th, 1997, exactly five years later, five-year-old Shanae Freeman went missing. Officers went to speak with the family and there was a man consoling the mother. This man, Nicholas Bowen, came off a little odd to the officer. With a little bit of pressure, Nicholas cracked and admitted he was the one that took the little girl, Shanae. He said she was hurt real bad and there was a lot of blood. He took officers to where he disposed of her in a shallow grave. Nicholas was 6 foot 2, 200 pounds, but he was only 17 and a half years old. In regards to Shauna, he would have only been 12 at the time, which meant that it would be nearly impossible for him to be guilty of Shauna's death. Her case at this point was pronounced a cold case, which of course only further frustrated the already distraught mother, Lucy Howe. Cuz 
in Lucy's eyes, just because he was 12 didn't mean he didn't have something to do with it, didn't mean he, was he wasn't there. So, at this point, it's just helplessness. What, what else can she do at this point? What could she have done in the first place besides what she had already done? She was already being a you know, fabulous mother, so we never know stuff like this is going to happen. In January of 1998, six years later, Richard Graham showed up at Lucy's door and said, I'm going to solve this. He was a detective now, and at the time of Shauna's initial disappearance, he was only a patrol officer. He had a personal attachment to this case. He said, who wouldn't? This is a child, which is a good point. I continue to carry a normal caseload. He had, I believe, 72 cases. But every night, he was reading the Shauna Howe case. I'm slow. He's dyslexic. When I read something, I read it several times to make sure it sinks in and I've got it right. Sometimes the second or third look, you'll see maybe a word or a phrase that you didn't pick up on the first time. He looked at the autopsy photos and he looked at the coroner's report and he said, this doesn't make sense. That, um, that part where you just hear uh, Richard Graham's wife in the background, he's dyslexic, that like, <laughs> that part really got to me. I mean, obviously these documentaries are not meant to be funny, but that part was kind of cute, his wife calling him out. <laughs> anyway, to continue. There was a mark on Shauna's cheek that was not in the autopsy report. It was a partial shoe print. There were also no marks on her body to indicate that she was being restrained by any rope or anything like that. This means that there was more than one person involved. Officers did another full sweep. <sighs> And like, I, I, I'm, I can't help but be a little bit frustrated with them not looking deeper, you know, and in the beginning of the documentary, they were really adamant that officers were being very serious, taking things very seriously, but it almost feels like once they found Shauna's body, it, it dimmed, it died down. There was less investigating and a little more sloppiness. I mean, to not to not catch this, to not have the partial shoe print in the autopsy report, like, come on, guys, like, I can go on for days, but um, I'm sure you guys are frustrated with me, so let's just continue on with the story. So, like I said, officers did another full sweep. Actually, I'm just going to say officers did a full sweep, because clearly it wasn't full when they first did it. They checked with the local fire department. Apparently, in 1992, they had received a call about a fire in a small red car. That car belonged to Ted Walker. Remember, this is the pizza shop guy, the hugger, the weirdo. Officers took him into questioning immediately. This next part is a clip from the documentary, but it's it's more of the interview, so you guys might not be able to hear, but I'll try my best to reiterate afterwards. Mr. Walker, are you aware that this conversation is being recorded? Yep. And no you, problems. You do not have a problem that's nope. being recorded? Thank Nothing you. to hide. Mr. Walker was interviewed here by the state police on more than one occasion. How is it did you first learn of Shauna Howe's abduction? Tim and Jim O'Brien came and told him. You guys, Tim and Jim O'Brien told Ted Walker about the abduction of Shauna Howe. Do you remember that name we talked about a few couple minutes ago about these O'Briens, sexually violent, tried to kidnap a girl? What the f- Alright. <clears throat> like I said, like I said, full sweep this time, right? We're gonna take it seriously this time, right? Let's continue. 
They asked him how he found out about Shauna going missing. He said, Tim and Jim O'Brien. That's um, what we just went over. Detective Graham asked Officer Daly. Remember Charles Daly? He is the one that said the O'Briens were in jail. We're going back to that now. Detective Graham asks Officer Daly, did you look at the O'Briens? And he responded, yes, but they were in jail. They couldn't have done it, right? Same thing, same story. Let's go on. Detective Graham was not satisfied with this answer. He never saw an arrest report. He double-checked with the station. The O'Briens were in jail, but they were bonded out before the abduction. I'm not even going to make any comments because you guys already know how I feel about this. At this point, Tim was in jail for sexually assaulting a girl, and Jim was arrested for trying to ad little I can't say the word abduct. <laughs> this is bothering me. Jim was arrested for trying to abduct a woman and put her into his trunk. Again. Detective Graham went in to question Tim in prison. He requested a DNA sample, and after a small hesitation, Tim told him that he had to check with his attorney. As the detective was leaving, he saw a candy wrapper that Tim had. This gave him chills. If you guys remember, the candy wrapper was also next to Shauna Howe's shoes on top of the bridge. So now he knew he had the men that committed this horrible crime. It is now February 2002. Ten years later. I don't know what happened between then and 2002. Maybe it takes that long to get a warrant for someone's DNA. I have no idea. But Tim's DNA comes back and it is a match. Officers concluded that it was Ted Walker, Tim, and Jim O'Brien. I'm going to play a clip for you guys from the documentary of Ted Walker's confession. Isn't that right? Right. And who was that person the witness saw? Hey. Right. So you walk up to her and as you're approaching her, you said you asked her what? She was selling Girl Scout cookies. Okay. And and why do you ask her that? Because I like working Girl Scout cookies. Right. I know that. But just make her feel at ease. Make her feel at ease? Then what do you do? Well, I grab a hold of her and take her back. Did you grab her? Right around the shoulders. You grab her? Carry it out and hand her to 10. You hand her to 10. So there's Walker handing her off to somebody, but then there's somebody driving her. And they're all three involved in that. So in case you guys were unable to hear that, Ted Walker said he asked Shauna for Girl Scout cookies because he liked Girl Scout cookies, but also to make her feel at ease. He handed her, or grabbed her by the shoulders, handed her to Tim, and Jim was driving. Um, so all three of them were involved. So I'm not sure what the witness said about there only being one tall skinny guy and not mentioning that there was other people involved. Again, I don't know what the witness said, what the officer or the dispatcher wrote down, what the officer, you know, things get lost in translation the more people are passing off information, unfortunately. They had assaulted her at their home, kept her quiet with candy, took her to Coulter's hold, assaulted her again, left her bodysuit there, put her in the trunk overnight, and then the next day threw her off of the bridge. So Ted Walker was convicted of kidnapping and murder in the third degree. He is facing 40 years in prison. Tim and Jim O'Brien were convicted of kidnapping and murder. They are facing life without the possibility of parole. I think about her every day. I miss her every day. But I can say I love you, Shauna, and go on with my day. I'm not frozen in that time anymore. I love my daughter. I miss her with everything that's in me. But she's not in pain. What they did to her can't hurt her anymore. And I know I still love her till this day. And that's not going to go away, no matter what. So that was Lucy Howe 
talking, you know, recently about the death of her daughter and learning to accept it. And one thing that she said that really hit me was, they can't hurt her anymore. That's really the only thing you can say in a situation like this that, you know, won't make it worse. Um, but, you know, you guys just... My biggest thing in all of this, in all these stories that we tell is to just please be street smart, you know? And sometimes you can be as street smart as you were taught or, you know, be as safe as you think you, you know, can be, but it's not enough because some people are just the way that they are. And sometimes, you know, things happen to people even though they are trying to be as safe as they possibly can. And I like to think I'm very street smart, but I, I know that I'm not untouchable. You know, things can happen to anybody. So just please do not be reckless out there, you guys. And not that they were. I don't think in I don't think in this case, you know, anyone thought anything bad was gonna happen. Uh, make sure you don't don't walk alone places at night. Um, just be very careful. You know, I, I hear a lot of stories about people in the area that even I live in and they're, you know, out going to clubs, out going to bars and they're just being drunk and, you know, that's fine, but just be with a group of people. Be with your friends, be with someone that's going to keep you safe. Carry a pepper spray, you know, carry, I don't know if a pocket knife is legal or allowed, um, but pepper spray I know is, so, you know, things like that. Just be very, very safe. Some people call me paranoid, but <laughs> it's like, I have a true crime podcast, and I also, you know, it's how I was raised. My mom always taught me to be street smart, so I hope that I'm making her proud, and I hope that I can teach you guys a thing or two while you're listening to this podcast. Um, besides that, thank you guys so much for listening. Please be sure to give us five stars wherever you're listening. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, all that good stuff. And I will be seeing you guys next week. I will be posting on New Year's Day. Um, hopefully Jen will be back by then, but, um, if not, then for sure next week it'll be back to Jen and Jules. So, have a good one, guys. Be street smart. And thank you for consuming crime with me today.